0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Solar SolarBee Podcast. I'm Tom Miller, Marketing Director here at BayWa RE Solar Systems. And today I'm joined by a couple of financing experts to talk about solar financing. We'll talk about current trends, uh, what products are popular with homeowners, and what questions you can ask to determine the best product fit. We'll talk dealer fees and when a high APR product might be better. We'll also discuss tips on working with financiers and some future trends as well. So if you're interested in working with a solar financier or thinking about switching or just want some additional insight into how to make financing products work better for your company, I think you'll get a lot out of our guests and the conversation today. And joining me to talk about this is our Director of Residential Financing, Rachel Shapira. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Tom.
0: And also joining me is Greg Fisher. He's the Senior Director of Business Development at Goodly. Welcome, Greg.
2: Hey, Tom. Good to be here.
0: And you can also hear more from Greg, I should mention this, in our most recent town hall where we talk a lot about residential and commercial financing, so make sure and check out that episode. And also joining us and another previous town hall guest is Robin Kenkel. She's the Senior Director, Head of Counterparty Risk at Mosaic. Welcome, Robin.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Okay, so to kick us off today, um, we're going to talk about some trends to start with in the residential financing market. And since Robin and Greg are our guests today, most of the questions are going to be directed at them, but you know, I'm going to ask Rachel to chime in whenever she wants. But let's start with you, Robin. What are you tracking that might be relevant and interesting for solar contractors to know about right now in the residential finance market?
3: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of supply constraints, and I'm sure everyone is aware. Um, Panels are, are, you know, in low supply, batteries most especially are in low supply, and with more customers wanting to adopt battery technology, that means that perhaps our durations on completing the solar installation will take much longer, Um, and we are actually seeing that in some markets, especially in new markets, new solar markets, where the utilities are really pushing back. Um, you know, I think that, that, that can really have an impact on finance companies, especially as they outlay capital for projects. And they're just not seeing those projects, uh, completed in a, in a timely manner as they may have before COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. To follow up there, uh, how do you think the relationship between installers and financiers has changed at all in the last year or so?
3: I, I think that it's changed for the better. Um, I think that we've gotten much closer, especially um, with those partners that, you know, have kind of moved more of their business to perhaps one lender over the other, and they're doing a majority of their wallet share with uh, one particular lender. And then there, there are folks that, you know, kind of spread the love, if you will, between different financiers, um, and, and that's a way for them to mitigate risk. I think that, you know, during COVID, we all worked really well together with sharing information, understanding what was going on in market, um, and also, you know, about the financial health of of companies and having real transparent conversations about that. So I think that there's been a lot more stickiness created in the industry and we're able to have more constructive conversations.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I want to go to Greg next, but Rachel, I see your hand up. Do you want to add something to what Robin was saying?
1: Yeah, I I would agree with everything she said and also add that I think I'm, or at least We're hearing reports about labor shortages affecting install timelines. Um, A lot of installers are struggling to hire enough salespeople to manage all the inbound leads and to hire enough install crews to handle all the sales that they're closing. And that's another factor at play that's pushing out install timelines, which only compound the capital constraints and pressures that are put on installers. Since a lot of installers don't get paid until projects are completed, um, it really puts a lot of financial
0: pressure on installers to see timelines getting longer. Great. Thanks for jumping in there, Greg. I, w- I want to get uh, your take on the market right now. But before we do, in our last town hall, you mentioned that solar finance is a commodity right now. In your opinion, can you elaborate on that? That that some more?
2: Yeah, and I probably should have been clear. I mean, money money is a commodity, right? Um, and there's a lot of products and you know specific to the solar industry that could be considered a, a commodity. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're seeing and what's been interesting is you know the idea of uh, in in 2021, of being able to provide financing to a homeowner is is not as novel as it was in in, in 2015 or 2016. In an automated fashion, in the home, real time decisions, automated loan docs. So it, it is capital is is widely and readily available. Capital providers are finding that this tends to be a fairly predictable, safe and secure asset class. And so what solar finance companies are are having to do and most are is getting innovative in finding ways to provide additional value uh, in what is essentially a commoditized product. Um, And I think it only makes the installers better. I think it only makes the industry better. And I'm really impressed with what some of these companies have done to continue to be innovative and help these installers grow and bring some stability and predictability to the industry itself, Mm -hmm. but also have these assets perform with the capital providers. And that's a, that's a big part of it is if we are originating uh, loans on behalf of these capital providers that don't perform, two things happen. There's not as much capital that's coming in the space and the cost of that capital goes up. Both things are, are really detrimental to the long-term growth of the industry.
0: Great, thanks for fleshing that out some more. Um, how about trends that you're tracking that you wanna flag for solar contractors?
2: So I think there's a couple of things that we're seeing. You know, the, the market is getting conditioned to these low APR products. You know, so once upon a time, having a, a 299 on a 20 year was like a really big deal. And now that's not as widely as popular product as, you know, the sub 2% products are. It's something we're keeping an eye on. The The frustrating challenge about solar and the cool thing about this industry is nothing stays static for too long. Things come in trends, there's ebbs and flows, there, there's peaks and valleys. So one of the things that we're, we're keeping close eye on is at a uh, national level, what's happening with interest rates? You know, does, does the Fed decide that interest rates need to be increased to stave off inflation? Uh, the downstream effect is, will capital providers continue to offer APRs at rates that are equal to or maybe even slightly higher than what they are or lower, excuse me, than what they're actually uh, producing that capital for? Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're looking at, but that certainly is a trend. And we're certainly seeing that a lot of the market is migrating uh, that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more of the long-term trends that we're seeing uh, and we're anticipating is the evolution of the finance space where homeowners are getting more savvy. Um, One of the things that the last 12 months uh, really showed us was people were home, uh, they had time, they wanted to make improvements to their living space and they had access to relatively inexpensive capital to do so. So we plan on seeing that trend where it's, hey, I wanna do solar and I wanna do new windows or I need a new roof. I wanna make my home more energy efficient. How do finance providers consolidate all those services into one financing package, how do finance providers provide avenues and ways for these homeowners to pay these loans off in advance of their term? I think those are some things that short-term and long-term that we're continuing to see, keep our eye on, and of course, you know, play our part in helping uh, innovate and evolve the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Robin, what about risks? Uh, biggest risks that you're that you can flag for us for solar contractors right now?
3: Some of the biggest risk that I see is, you know, it's the elephant in the room, it's capital. Um, payment terms and being able to float the business with the amount of sales that you're bringing in. And as we know, a lot of these companies are growing very quickly and they're having a difficult time scaling. This is probably not a popular opinion, but I don't think that labor is necessarily scalable. Um, you can scale your sales, you can scale uh, processes, you can do all these things, but labor is a finite resource. And so, you know, as Rachel mentioned earlier, it is a big problem. Equipment shortages are also a major problem because, as I mentioned, it's increasing duration. And so when you increase duration, you have capital out to your distributors or you may not be able to make your payment terms because you haven't been able to install the entire project. Um, And so that could that could cause some major problems. And as we know, uh, equipment is also rising. And so I would anticipate if you're a sales dealer and your contractor that you're working with hasn't come to you and said, hey, we need to raise your red line, you should be anticipating those conversations in the next few months. Equipment is definitely rising um, because it is in short supply.
1: And with the timelines between contract sale and install pushing out while prices are going up, it adds additional like risk because the longer the gap is between the sale and when you're procuring equipment, the, m- the more you're likely to see a gap between what was priced in, penciled in at the time something was sold to a homeowner, and the time you're able to buy equipment in an in a, in a environment where prices are going up. Mm-hmm. And it ends up putting the EPC often in a pinch. And if they haven't necessarily arranged their contracts with the originator to um, share the pain in the event that there's um, events that happen that eat into margin, very often it's going to be the EPC holding the bag and, and have, seeing their margins
3: um, degrade. Yeah, if I may add one more thing. Please. And- Um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, want to grow super big and they want to be in multiple markets. And I think that one of the biggest risks for installers that I see is moving into new markets too quickly where you don't have controls in place. And so if somebody wants to move into Louisiana or to Georgia or to Florida, and they don't have the proper operational processes in place to be able to handle that new volume, it can turn very bad um, because you're lacking quality and controls. And then that leads to a terrible homeowner experience, which ultimately costs a lot of money. Um, so that's definitely something to consider before you move to a new market.
0: Awesome. Greg, anything, uh, any other risks you want to, to flag here for us building on what Rachel and Robin said?
2: Yeah, I'll piggyback off Robin and Rachel a little bit on the short-term. Everything they said is, is spot on. We're starting to see some things in the space that we haven't seen for quite some time for a lot of installers. It's been, it's been the good time solar wave for, for three, four, five years where we just haven't experienced product shortages. Pricing has really only gone in one direction. And quite frankly, a lot of leverage sat at the, at the buyer side. So it, it's something that, you know, we have to help these installers navigate their way through if it's their first time through this, this type of cycle. Longer term, as the risk pertains to the finance space, I think compliance is something that weighs heavily on, on everybody's mind. And, you know, as we talked about uh, on the, uh, the town hall last week, the, the trend towards more contractors outsourcing sales activity to a certain degree, it, it provides a gap, right? It's how much visibility do they have in how the products are being sold, what's being communicated for us, of course, how the finances is being sold. And I think it's really important that as an industry, we do as much self-regulation as we can, because I think it's only a matter of time before some state attorney general has a, a great aunt who might be in her seventies or eighties and he finds out or, that, or she finds out that they were sold a solar system at $10 a watt on a 25 year loan. Right. I mean, those are the things that, that concern us. I, I, I know, I know it keeps Rachel up or excuse me, Robin up at night um, that we have to be cognizant of that. We have to make sure that as you know, a segment within this industry that we are doing the training that we're making sure they understand how you can compliantly, communicate and offer financial products. I think the common idea amongst a lot of sales professionals in the space, and I know it was this way long ago when I started, is at some point, this is all going to end, right? The sun's not going to come up tomorrow or the panels just aren't going to work. And I need to figure out how much we can get and get now. And I think we understand the mentality. I think the idea though, is how do we make sure that we're, we're looking at the long-term opportunity uh, for the growth of the industry, the prosperity of the industry, the sustainability of the industry. Love it. Great I would point. also yeah.
1: add to that, that, you know, solar is still not a mainstream product. And so a, f- a few people having bad experiences and ending up on the 10 o'clock news or telling their friends that they had bad experiences can have a meaningful impact on the success of the entire industry, which is why um, we want to, s- you, I mean, fundamentally, you have a happy homeowner when their expectations matches reality and their price is, is reasonable and they're saving money relative to their utility bills. So if all of the, if you can, if we as an industry can do adequate training to make sure that every homeowner goes solar, knowing what to expect and um, has a smooth process where expectation matches reality, we're going to grow faster and be stronger for it.
2: You, you just said something, Rachel, that I think is uh, I, I dovetails into this. The bad experience, the, the stories that hit the news. We've seen this in several markets um, you know, who's your biggest competitor? Well, it's the utility company. And, and the utility companies have ways that they will market these stories, right? They, they, they will catch onto it because they're trying to create that fear and certainty and doubt of, you know, see, it, it doesn't work or it's not a good experience or it doesn't save you the money it's supposed to because we're a direct competitor to, to the revenue lines. And I don't mean to paint too broad of a brush or put all the utilities in a bad light, but we have seen it, right? So it's it's really, really important that we do the self-regulating and that we do make sure that we are to the best of our abilities, taking homeowners end to end through this process the, the right way.
0: Great. So let's let's talk a little bit more about how contractors can best work with financiers and and then we'll pivot again and talk about working with homeowners. But but Robin, to kick us off on the how installers can work with financiers, what questions should solar contractors be asking financiers when deciding who they work with?
3: I think there's a couple of, you know, key questions that you can ask. Um, one is re- what are your approval rates for customers? What are your stipulation rates? So, um, do you ask customers a lot to prove like, income or property verification? Uh, what are your payment terms? Um, how do you pay your contractors so that I can understand how I'm going to need to manage my cash flow? And some of, the, some of the questions that I would be asking is, how do you support your partners? How do you help me grow? How do you teach me how to sell financing? And, and do you have any special programs that help me with, with equipment to get access to equipment um, or have special pricing on equipment based on volume? Those are some of the key questions that I
2: would be asking.
0: Great. Greg, key questions here?
2: Uh, key questions that Robin did not already cover because she had yes. a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, spending uh, four years or so on the contractor side and working with contractors and consulting capacity, one of the questions I would ask is, and again, you know, this was early on, Hey, have you ever not been able to meet your payment obligations? Mm-hmm. Meaning, did you commit more capital than you had availability to? or on hand. And, and it's not, it's happened. It's not, it doesn't happen often, but in the same way, if I was talking to a, a manufacturer about a direct relationship and then wanted to know, have you ever told a partner of yours, you made a commitment to uh, that you didn't have an equipment for them. Right. I mean, this is, this is all important things, especially with those smaller contractors where, you know, the, the, the payment that's supposed to come on Thursday, may be the difference of them making payroll on Friday or not. Robin touched on a lot of them, you know, it's interesting there. It used to be very few contractors had access to a relationship with a finance company. Um, It was a pretty high bar. And we all have underwriting criteria. We all have certain requirements that partners need to meet, whether it be licensing, whether it be, uh, you know, financial stability, but the conversation has definitely shifted from the finance company interviewing you to more of an equilibrium of both parties are interviewing each other and ultimately trying to identify you know, if it's a good fit. Um, and I'm sure that Robin has had the same conversation as I have where sometimes you talk to a partner and what their expectations or needs are may not be a fit with what you can and cannot provide uh, and, and vice versa. So ultimately that is a super important part of it is, hey, is it a good fit for the business? So when someone says to us, we only want to send you all of the business that we can't get approved elsewhere. I, I can't speak for Robin. I know our position is, hey, got it. You have somebody you prefer. That's probably not a good fit for our business model. Um, and, and maybe it's not, it's not going to work out, right? I mean, th- those are the conversations that take place. But very much so, even the smallest contractors are interviewing the finance companies with all the questions that Robin just mentioned and trying to decipher who gives me the best chance to be successful.
1: I would also try to assess how committed the capital provider is to the solar industry, Um, to Greg's point, because we have seen people enter and exit the space and leave installers in the lurch, Um, not recently, but in years past. Um, I anticipate with the strong performance of solar loans and leases in 2020 through the recession that we're going to be seeing more capital providers entering the solar space. And I would be, um, if you're considering working with someone who's not super committed to the solar space, I would definitely want to investigate how long-term they're planning on staying in this space because it, it doesn't serve you well to work with someone for a short period of time and then have them disappear quickly and leave you scrambling for other options.
0: Mm, great points. So well, related to that, Robin, and this was mentioned before, but we're seeing that most mature and growing solar companies now have access to multiple financing options. What are financiers doing to try to retain installer volume and maintain loyalty? Um is there still any expectation of loyalty there, or, or how we have we moved to a different dynamic?
3: I'm not sure that there's necessarily an expectation of loyalty. I mean, there's you know three real you know choices out in the market. Um, in my opinion, I think that the platforms are innovating. Um, they're trying to make working with them so much easier um, in terms of either the operational process. Um, or the front end press process for homeowners. So we are constantly looking for value adds that we can offer to our partners that help them get paid faster. Um, and so some of those things are, you know, relationships with distributors, you know, other types of services that can help us mitigate risk. Um, I know there's rooftop delivery services, um, those types of things. So anything that adds value to a contractor, I really think is, is what's going to create that stickiness and, you know, make them want to use that platform more so than
2: others.
0: Mm. Greg, any thoughts here, Uh, loyalty to different companies, multiple, you know, entities
2: yeah, I think we. I mean, we're we're definitely seeing certain finance providers, you know, try to drive you know greater loyalty, and it's at different levels, right? Are we trying to identify how we get more more stickiness with the EPC, with the sales organization? So, once finance provider has a rewards program that builds points, and if the salesperson has so many loans through that provider over the year, they could get a set of golf clubs, or a jet ski, or a vacation. right? that's that's one area. We're also hearing of. Uh, larger organizations that are being approached by finance companies, and basically with a, a front-end uh, rebate check, right? So we, we ask you guys to commit a certain percent or all of your volume to us, and we will front load the rebate based on on, on those volume commitments. So we, we do see things like that, and we think we see various degrees uh, of effectiveness. The interesting thing is, as you're driving towards these loyalty kind of thresholds, we're in a little bit of unchartered territory, Because for the most part, it's an industry that downstream, I don't want to say loyalty has been fickle or fleeting, but whether it's modules, whether it's who am I buying from and the distributor, you know, it's become that how does my price become lower and lower and lower. And so historically, we've seen that people do do shift and move around um, wherever those trends may take them. So I think for some folks, it's a little bit of an experiment. I think the jury's still out if those experiments are, are working. I think ultimately though, to dovetail what Robin's com- comments were, everybody realizes that getting somebody a low rate uh, in, in real time and processing alone, that is, that is the bare minimum. No mm-hmm. different than as a distributor, taking product that you want, getting it off the shelf, putting it on a truck and getting it to you when we promised we would at the price we did, same thing there. I mean, that, that's the bare minimum. So how do we continue to innovate and build off of that to make these companies better, to um, make sure that we don't provide any risk and also make sure that the, the loans that we're originating have a good solid return and don't have a lot of risk to the capital providers. So we're mm. all dealing with three customers, the homeowner, the capital provider, the contractor, and we're trying to thread that needle of those concentric circles about how we, we bring more value to all three customer bases.
0: I want to come back to something you said a minute ago, you, you mentioned volume commitment, and I'm not an expert on this, but, but this might be related, but Financiers seem to be pushing on midsize and large installers to make exclusive, exclusivity agreements. You know, I, I don't know if that's the same as a volume commitment, but what's behind this, and how effective and enforceable is this?
2: Well, interesting timing. So I, I think there's there's a couple different reasons why a partner or excuse me, why a finance company might might be driving towards this. Um, you might be publicly held, uh, and you might have to show a return, and you might have to show growth, right? Ultimately, I think when, when we try to drive towards this, um, it's more about quality. right? So again, the, the industry will drive down dealer fees, and I know you're going to talk about this here in a little bit, mm-hmm. when the capital markets view solar, which is an unsecured asset, as a secured asset. Mm-hmm. So the idea being is that as long as the quality remains uh, with you know solid FICO scores, with low delinquency rates, with low ACH opt-out rates, over time, the cost of that capital associated with the risk of that capital will will go down. Um, So there's different reasons that that people people will do it. I would say that it was a novel concept 12 months ago. Um, It seems to be that more finance providers are moving uh, in in that direction um, for various reasons. And I would say the success rate and how enforceable uh, some of these agreements are Uh, I think the jury is still out candidly. Okay.
0: Rachel, I saw you came off mute. Any thoughts there? Should I move on?
1: Oh, I was just going to say that really resonates with a conversation Robin and I had recently. Robin, I was wondering if you wanted to add to that or just...
3: Yeah, I think what Greg said is, is absolutely correct. And I mean, ultimately, when you have a contractor that you know is outselling really quality business their customers are happy their customers are paying yeah absolutely as you know as somebody that would go and do that i would ask those folks to be exclusive as well because it is going to help you with the, with the whole entire value chain Um, with the capital partners, et cetera. So I wholeheartedly agree with that.
0: Okay. Wonderful. So let's switch gears here and talk about another really important topic, working with homeowners. So, you know, what products are popular right now? What types of products work best for different kinds of homeowners, qualifying customers? We'll, We'll talk a little bit about that. Greg, let's start with you. What financing products are popular with homeowners right now? What are you tracking?
2: So it's probably gonna be a different answer uh, between myself and, and Robin, uh, because we, we represent companies that might have different products. The sub 2% products that we carry can continue to remain to be really popular. Our, our FlexPay product, which um, has some different components uh, to it, which really helps drive a lower payment for the first 18 months. So it's really a loan designed for somebody who doesn't plan on having that loan full term, Um, that's been wildly popular for us, um, especially in markets where the retail cost of electricity is relatively low, Florida, Texas, Nevada, Arizona, but usage is is significantly higher. You know, everyone's got a different philosophy. I think GoodLeap's philosophy on say the 0.99 and 0.49 might be a little bit different than some of the peers in our space, but that has been something that we introduced uh, probably six months ago that really has caught on with, with certain market segments simply because of some of the flexibility in the payment structure, but also that that low payment opportunity.
0: Robin, same question. What's popular with homeowners right now?
3: Uh, I agree with what Greg said 20 25 even 30 year term loans um, are very popular it really gets you you know uh, on parity or saving money as compared to your utility bill um, another thing that I think is really important is transferability of a loan so you know customers want to be sure that if they're going to move in 2 years or 7 years or 20 years that they're able to transfer the rest of that loan i think you know the Since the conversation has now moved to resiliency, batteries are very interesting. Um, I think last year, 1.3 billion power outages hours in 2020 as compared to 770 million hours. And so it's really on top of mind for customers, especially in those coastal areas. And so everybody's interested in batteries. Uh, They might not be able to get them, but uh, it's definitely a conversation point.
2: I'll, right. let me something that I just think it's interesting that and, and Robin's right on people ask about transferability all the time. Um, it's important. If I look at, you know, our transferability late rates, they're really low. And people, I say, well, why is that? And, and I think right now it's low because we have been enjoying a relatively hot housing market nationally for the, for the past few years. And like anything else, everything will go in cycles. And so right now people are saying, well, I've got a balance on my loan. I think there's a little bit more value to be added to my, my house's value because that's solar. And I can add that value and I can sell the house and I can pay the loan off. And now I'm also selling a house to somebody where the solar is free and clear. Uh, and because maybe I'm getting five offers after putting on the market for a day, right? I mean, we're hearing crazy stories. So that's yeah. that, that will change, that will shift. At some point, the same two models on the same block with the same exact solar system uh, that are both for sale at the same time uh, and houses are, are, are taking longer to sell, transferability will be will be important, right? Because I probably can't add the value to it. The market is not responding to that because there's too much inventory. So the ability to transfer that loan is going to be, I think, more important. And so I bring it up because people do ask all the time. It, it may not be as important today, but Robin hit the nail on the head. At some point down the road, when the market shifts, having that flexibility with that loan is going to be critical to the homeowner.
1: I think another factor that's at play with why the so many customers when they sell their homes are just paying their loans down nowadays is how low the APRs are on mortgages and that's just not something that's going to be here forever and I would anticipate seeing the transfer rate go up as the APR on the on a mortgage
0: goes up. Greg, let's go back to you. Um, households can be very different in terms of their makeup, whether they're on a fixed income, maybe, if they're a working family, um, if they plan to stay in the home, as you mentioned, or move in the next few years. How should a solar contract evaluate the options and figure out which is the best product for those homeowner types?
2: So I think this is the, the, the miss for most solar sales professionals. They, they mm. answer all the right, they ask all the right questions about how do you use power? And are your kids gonna be in the home much longer? And do you think you're gonna use more power and you have solar? But they don't ask all those questions about financing. So how long do you plan on being in the house? How often do you refinance? Um, do you plan on applying the tax credit at month 18 uh, to the buy down of the loan? Or, or do you plan on, on on keeping that? Do you have, you know, some people will say, you, hey, I have cash, I could do it, but gosh, money's so cheap right now. Um, I just figured I'd leverage free money through the tax credit. These are all questions that they should be asking. To help them get to the right financing solution. So, for example, maybe a finance provider has a zero fee dealer zero zero dealer fee product, uh, low term, high APR. But the homeowner says, "Hey, as soon as the tax credit kicks in, I'm probably going to pay this off." Maybe that's a solution that would work for them. So, I think that's where we have a lot of opportunity to do more education, more training, provided that we have a, an open minded audience. Is helping sales professionals kind of uncover what's important to the homeowner when it comes to financing, not just solar, to make sure that they can put the right solution in front of them.
0: Robin, do you want to build on that at all?
3: I think what Greg said is absolutely, you know, on on point. Um, you know, and you know, as a sales professional, you're not supposed to, you know, give tax advice, but you can ask customers if they pay taxes every year, or if they get a refund to try to, you know, help understand like where they're at. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I agree, like we, we just need to do a much better job on the sales side in educating our reps to understanding, you know, what, how, how customers differ and how products could help customers uh, differently, but also like taking a look around the house. If a customer has trees all over their home, they're probably not going to be a good controller unless they want to trim down and cut down all of their trees. Um, So, you know, that's something that I see a lot, unfortunately, and like even in marketing material where the system is shaded with trees. Um, So, you know, really kind of you know, understanding your surroundings as well. But, you know, of course, everything that Greg said on point.
0: Mm-hmm. Greg, um, let's bounce over to you. When do high dealer fees make sense for an installer or a homeowner? Uh, and when is maybe a high or APR product better?
2: It's an interesting question. I think this is where salespeople sometimes don't always see the forest through the trees right? So there's, with any finance provider, there's going to be a sliding scale of your low term, low APR to high APR, and then your long-term low APR and what the the fee structure is. So the the difference in payment in a one basis point dealer fee adjustment is about a dollar per month. It's significantly higher when you talk about the difference of one full point on the APR. So the interest rate is always going to have a more significant impact on the payment amount, the dealer fee. The dealer fee is one time, the APR is going to be every month for the duration of that loan. So if the homeowner says, I am looking for the lowest payment possible, then more often than not, the lower APR product is going to provide that solution for them. If they have a specific payment amount in mind that they're willing to accept, if they are more concerned about what is the loan or what is the contract price, right? Th- then, then maybe a higher APR process, product makes sense. I think what really happens is the homeowner doesn't get to decide. The salesperson is deciding for them. Okay. Uh, and there's some compliance reasons for that. There's some, there's some lending legislation that the salespeople have to adhere to that we spend a lot of time working with them on. But keep in mind, the market often will decide for them. So if I'm a homeowner and I have one company that comes out to me and all they want to offer is a 20 or 599, maybe that's the only product they have, and another contractor comes out to me and they have a 20 year 149, then I have to take that information from both contractors and see what's going to be the best fit for me.
0: Robin, do you wanna weigh in on this one too? Rachel, you, your eyebrows went up. Did you wanna jump in first and then I'll ask Robin? I'll, I'll let Robin go first. Okay.
3: Yeah, I totally agree again with Greg, um, but let's also remember that dealer fees are supposed to be paid by the contractor. Not by the homeowner, and so that is your access to financing because financing is supposed to help you grow your wallet share, have a more addressable market because not everybody has thirty thousand dollars in the bank um, to spend on a solar system. So, you know, again, I just I think it's important to understand that the dealer fees are supposed to be paid by the contractor and not the homeowner. Okay.
1: Yeah, I I would agree with Greg that generally speaking. It is the contractor deciding or the salesperson or maybe the sales manager deciding what products to lead with in their market given knowledge of what's competitive in a given region. But generally speaking, uh, people like Greg said in his earlier comments, people who are planning on paying their loans down sooner are going to be better served by a shorter term loan um, or a higher APR loan or maybe a short term high APR loan. And people who are planning on um, keeping... You know, who are looking for the best savings are going to be best served by a higher dealer fee, lower APR product. And this gets back to uh, underlining something I don't think we've touched on yet, but something I often try and remind contractors that, generally speaking, if you look at any lender's uh, suite of whether it's high APR, low dealer fee, or high dealer fee, low APR products for the same loan term, it's generally going to add up to be the same amount of money or approximately the same amount of money. And if more of the money is in a dealer fee, Uncle Sam helps subsidize the cost of financing. But that's only the true if someone's keeping the loan for the full loan term. Because if, if the interest is not adding up over time, then the impact of compound interest doesn't um, impact them so much. My advice to solar salespeople is being mindful of how long someone is actually planning on keeping a loan for and guide them to the loan term that makes the most sense for them.
0: Cool. Okay, so I have one question that Rachel brought up on the town hall last week, and then we'll dive into some future trends. But Rachel, you mentioned that an installer's operations and maintenance approach should be a factor in determining what finance products or go-to-market strategy installers use. Greg, are financiers thinking about this right now, uh, or is O&M still an afterthought in the residential solar industry?
2: I don't think it's an afterthought uh, in the residential solar industry. I think what we've seen is um, two things. The advent of of third-party residential O&M, which I think six, seven years ago, people would not have thought was a viable business model, that that is. Uh, And two, a lot of companies actually starting to include this uh, as a service or a value add um, simply because it's a point of of, of differentiation. What's interesting, and, and we get this question quite a bit is, can we wrap those services into uh, a long-term loan? It, it actually gets to be a little bit complicated simply because it's not like a PPA or a lease where a third party truly owns the asset. And so this is one where I think, you know, different financing companies are, are having a different approach to it. I, I think that the model I would say is there is a company that is looking to get in the loan space that has previously been in the PPA and lease space. I'm sure Robert has no idea who I'm talking about. And you know this is very much a part of their model is, hey, how do we do end to end, bumper to bumper um, and and include that in in the product? It's great in concept. and and maybe they've they've figured it out. Somebody still has to go and service it and do the replacement and do the maintenance when they don't own the asset. and they don't have a stake in the asset's performance to a certain degree, uh, at least not to the same degree as a PPR lease has. I think that's where it becomes a little bit tricky and challenging is, where does that ownership component and where does that value add component kind of cross over?
0: Got it. Robin, you want to weigh in here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've i been talking a lot about O&M recently. I think that a lot of contractors are starting to think about O&M. You know, as, as I've mentioned, as we see some of these um, installers go into new markets and they're not able to handle or scale into those new markets. Uh, you know, they leave abandoned customers. And so, you know, financing companies will reach out and ask other uh, folks to help complete those projects. But you know, post PTO, um, if quality was an issue from the very beginning, that system is going to be plagued with problems for many years to come. And so as Greg mentioned, you know a lot of contractors are adding on um, you know 25 year warranties or maintenance agreements with their customers to give them peace of mind. But you know again, we are seeing new entrants into this space that are offering warranties um, you know for a cost. So I think that more, contractors are thinking about how do I get in on this side of the business without taking away from my current install capacity, because that's how they make money right now. It's not on going back out and fixing customer systems. So they've got to figure out how they can balance the two and still provide that warranty service.
1: But I do, I have, I mean, over the years I've been in this space, I've talked to a lot of installers who have struggled with this very issue because they're not accounting for providing, you know, O&M on an ongoing basis to their customers, but they live in fear that a customer is going to give them a bad online review if, um, if they don't provide the O&M service. And I still think that there's a substantial gap between uh, the need in the market and the market penetration of these new O&M providers. So I'm glad they're here.
2: I think one of the biggest misses I see when we talk to partners, we do a review of the, their financials. Very few companies are accounting for the warranty and service component, right? O&M or not, it's there is a certain percentage of every product project that you sell where the revenue gen from that product project should be put aside into a warranty reserve on your balance sheet, so that it's never an issue of do I have the resources, the capital to meet my my warranty and my service obligations? Um, and it's hard, especially for the smaller contractors to say, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that, but right now I've got to invest here and I've got to do this, and every penny counts, and it's 100% valid. Um, I think that's where some of the risk is, right? It's you know, can you meet the, the contractual obligations you have? into what is into your, your your contract whether it's an OM agreement whether it's just a warranty and servant uh, and service maintenance agreement i think it's something that you know we can help uh, installers in that regard but i think there's a discipline that comes with the project today needs to have a little bit set aside for any issues and challenges down the road
1: Yeah, I mean, and the truth of the matter is that homeowners often expect their installers to service them long past the period of warranty that's covered, and for items that are not covered under the warranty agreements um, that installers offer uh, homeowners, and many installers are eating into their margins and um, eating into their install capacity to be able to service these homeowners to be able to maintain their online
0: reputations. Awesome. Yeah, please. Process (laughs)
3: process <laughs> where you you're not like the message is not necessarily controlled um and it, it may be different than than what is you know the spirit of that agreement
0: just to underline what you were saying you cut out a little bit but you're you're saying it comes back to the process
3: the sales process the front end sales process where okay. sales folks are educating the customer on what that agreement is and what it entails versus what the actual agreement and the spirit of that agreement is.
0: Awesome. Process transparency equals healthy solar industry. Let's keep that in front of mind. Okay. Well, I want to respect our guest's time today and start to wrap up. Uh, just a few more questions, and we'll just do kind of a quick ping pong. These are future trends. Uh, we touched on these a little bit, but I think it's just important to come back to the the question of material cost rises and labor shortages. So, Greg, how do you expect the upcoming rise in material costs to affect installers? Does this does this tie into solar
2: financing? Yeah, I think installers are uh, if if they have a rising unit cost in one area. They are going to look in other areas of their business, supply chain, partners, product services, and where they can offset that. I, I think that you know one of the greatest things that we can do upstream to the store contractors is continue to work with them, train them, teach them, coach them on how without relying on outside entities to, to manage their cost structure for them, where can they get better? Where can they get more efficient? Where can they become more scalable. Um, and that's not to say that we don't all feel we should do our part to help make sure that we're just continuing to drive costs down. But I think that sometimes smaller mid sized installers become so reliant on their supply partners, their distributors, their manufacturers, their finance companies uh, to help solve these problems for them. Mm. And so a, a lot of these contractors are going to try to figure out am I going to simply have a smaller margin? Because I, I need to keep my pricing where it is to be competitive and I will find my growth there. Um, If I am $0.02 a watt up over here, am I going to try to negotiate that elsewhere, or uh, am I going to have to increase my pricing to offset cost increase and and hope to to manage that way? Great.
1: I I think what's so challenging about the environment right now is that installers are facing both labor shortages, which might which will likely drive up labor costs um, because installers are going to inevitably start either paying sooner or paying more to be able to uh, hire and retain talent while equipment costs are going up. So as Greg was saying, very often, if prices rise in one area, they look for savings in another, but right now installers are facing prices rising in two areas that are a big portion of their cost structure.
0: Yeah.
3: I would add is that I think that, you know, just being realistic, about what your capacity is. So if you are really great and you're making good money at 40 to 50 installs a month, there's no need to jump to hundred. So, because that is obviously probably going to bring down your quality. It's gonna bring down your margin because you will have rising costs. So I think really taking a good look at your business and, and what your capacity is will help you to kind of weather some of these constraints in the short term so that you can build a healthier business.
1: I, I realized I'm being a little too doom and gloom. I do think the equipment pricing rises is not something that's here forever. And I think we have reason to be optimistic that come next year, think will, things will improve, whether it's because of the ch- changes in tariffs from China, um, Chinese products or other factors. Um, I do think some of the things that installers are going to be contending with for the next quarter and a half are not things that we're going to necessarily be sticking around for the long haul. So hopefully installer, we can help installers weather the storm that they're facing today um, so that and, the, and that comment, calmer waters are ahead. Uh, right.
2: we, 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 we've conditioned installers, unfortunately, in, in the industry as we, in any other industry, 15 to 20 to 25% year-over-year year growth is is outstanding. Well, only in solar uh, is that considered a failure.
0: Love it. I think that's Very a great true. place to leave it. Uh, I want to thank our guests today for their time and their insight. Tons of great information came out of that discussion. And we'll be publishing this as an article too. So make sure and check the podcast show notes for a link once that podcast is published. Greg Fisher, Senior Director of Business Development at Goodleap. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Robin Kinkle, she's the director and head of Counterparty Risk at Mosaic. Thank you so much, uh, Robin. Um, and thank you, as always, to Rachel Shapira, our director of financing, for putting this together. Really interesting conversation. And if you're interested in pursuing financing through Baywa RE, Rachel has worked really hard on the split pay financing program to help address cash flow challenges and create a lot of flexibility in product financing and procurement. So check out the show notes for more information about our offerings. Thanks, everyone. And see you next time.